By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to Moody's Talks, KYC Decoded. I'm your host, Alex Pillow, and this episode is presented by Moody's Analytics. A quick disclaimer. By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies, views or positions of Moody's Corporation and its affiliates. So we've heard about the risks, about ways to mitigate them and how law enforcement thinks about crypto. But what about the opportunities this space presents? What does this mean for the anti-financial crime professional? To help us unpick this, we've recruited two fantastic guests. Niels Pedersen is a senior lecturer of fintech at MMU and author, as well as having a background working for what was then called the FSA. And Lawrence Twelvetrees. Lawrence is a multiple time MLRO at fiat and crypto focused businesses and was actually my first client in fintech a long time ago when I initially entered the world of KYC and AML sales. Well, welcome to Niels Pedersen and, and Lawrence Twelve Trees. Thank you guys for, for coming in today. How are you both? Excellent. Thank you. I'm very well. Thank you, Alex. Good stuff. Well, we've probably got the most fun of the conversations for the crypto series today, uh, which is looking at the opportunities of crypto, particularly for the anti-financial crime or AFC KYC professional or the profession, perhaps better way to put it. Um, so we can be quite speculative. We can look at things that maybe have not yet come to pass, but we think might. If they don't, someone can come and tell us we're wrong in two or three years or, or so. So it uh, should, should be some good fun. I wanted to start with a statement, sort of an essay title, if you like. So crypto makes it easier to investigate crime. Discuss. I'd say yes and no. Uh, and it depends, you know, that, speaking as an academic. <laughs> Well, ex- expand on all three answers, if you will, Nils. Well, with crypto, there's so many ways of doing it. Um, and in terms of the, you know, the, what, what I'll call the bad actors, and I, I don't mean, you know, a high school drama teacher or anything like that. I mean a criminal. Uh, <laughs> that 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 uh, joke is in my, my book, by the way. I, I snuck past the, the publisher. <laughs> uh, but... Um, so, so the way I see it is uh, criminals are just as innovative uh, and creative as entrepreneurs. And some criminals are very advanced. So, so they'll, you know, do all sorts of things with uh, mixers and, you know, they have all sorts of ways of um, covering their tracks. Whereas some are not so advanced. So, so you know, the, these are your run-of-the-mill drug dealers who, who think uh, because it's called crypto, it's, it's somehow cryptic or, or, you know, secret. And so it really, it's a spectrum. Lawrence, what would your take be? Yeah, to add to that, um, totally agree with you, Niels. I'd say, I mean, crypto opens up the opportunity set to criminals. Let's be honest. It's, it's given them a new way, a new technology um, to launder funds. Obviously, that has come with an interesting new dynamic of much greater traceability mm. and tools uh, that exist now um, that didn't exist uh, in traditional traditional finance. So, on the one hand, yes, criminals can do more, um, can 
can layer their funds more easily, can can uh, disguise the trails, but they can be caught up with more easily. I think if, if we were to summarize that as a in a nutshell, so it is yes and no. <laughs> so it may not make it easier per se for the smarter criminal versus the dumb criminal, but it also gives the the ability to, uh, yeah, as you say, to to investigate better. So it's effectively it's a draw. It seems to be what you're saying. It's you know, it's it's this. It's not easier. It's I mean, just different. I mean, if we have to pick sides and we're, we're taking a, a, a future-proof perspective, I'll say, yes, it's easier to, to trace it. If, if, it, if and when, if you believe it will become, uh, you know, if not an equal or, or the dominant financial system, yeah, I think the tools will be very sophisticated and uh, regulators, practitioners will, will catch up and uh, it won't be as easy to, to launder funds. I mean, you look at cash, if that were invented now, it would be, you know, ridiculous, right? It's so anonymous. Um, crypto is pseudonymous, okay? So we have that aspect, but um, I'm sure we'll talk about this later on, but then when you do factor in the KYC and, and the traceability of, uh, of the major blockchains, then uh, that, should, uh, that should help things a lot. Sure. Nils, you, and, and sorry, Lawrence, you talked about the traceability angle, but Nils, if we think about, the opportunity that, say, crypto, you can say blockchain technology, you can use diff- different sort of um, ways to describe it. But you mentioned mixers, which are a known privacy uh, technology or, or tool. Mm. But the opportunity for privacy, what, what's going on in this space? Do you mean the privacy for honest people or for criminals? Well, let, let's answer both. Oh, it, it's, it's really hard to answer. Um, the, the, I think the first thing to realize is the space is so wide uh, that, that no one can really claim to be an expert unless they are an absolute uh, genius in mathematics and cryptography. And uh, I, am, I am merely an accountant, so <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> to disappoint you. Uh, but but I, I'd say um, there, there are ways, if you are apt with, with computers of you know, to, to, to use the colloquial terms, covering your tracks. Mm. And th- there may be very legitimate reasons why you'd want to do that. For instance, if you are some sort of human rights activist in a country that, uh, shall we say, is not democratic or, or doesn't respect freedom of speech. So, so that there may be legitimate reasons why people would want to preserve their privacy. That indeed, there may be commercial reasons. Maybe, maybe a better way to ask Nils is, what is the what are the pros and cons of the privacy element of ah. crypto and blockchain? Yep. Okay. That 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 makes sense. So you know, there's both crypto, and I think Lawrence will agree. There's opportunities and risks. Uh, so, so on one hand, uh, if we look at a blockchain system, that the, the main one of the main aspects of it is that in theory, uh, it's transparent. So so you. If you are participating in the network, you can observe the transactions and you can observe the code base so you can see what the network does. So, so in theory, uh, a blockchain system is, is a set of rules that governs the interactions between all the participants. And, and because uh, via cryptography, people are able to transact uh, pseudo anonymously so so you know not with their name but with a number 
it gives the participants more comfort in, in, in sharing their transactions with the rest of the network. Uh, and so in, in terms of opportunities, it, 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 I think Lawrence alluded to this earlier, it, it gives regulators and governments uh, and observers uh, oversight over what's going on uh, w- without necessarily uh, breaching the privacy of any one individual. So it's a bit like, uh, you know, some of the search engine providers. They know everything you search about, yeah. but they don't know your name. So, so it's a similar dynamic. So, so there is, on one hand, the opportunity to, to make transactions more public and more observable in real time without breaching any particular participant's privacy. Um, so, so that's... That, that I'd call that an opportunity. Uh, the problem is that uh, there are ways of limiting uh, that information sharing. So, so that there's various uh, tools such as mixers and whatnot that allow people to, to effectively, can't pronounce this word properly, but, but it starts with an O and it ends in skate, obfuscate. 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 It's very difficult. I probably butchered it as well, but it doesn't matter because <laughs> we're, we're not a English podcast. No, the, the, <laughs> I, if anyone is interested, I, I'm, I'm from Denmark. Anyway, yeah, there are tools that allow people to, to, let's say, hide their tracks or cover their tracks. And on one hand, that's an opportunity for people who have legitimate reasons to, to require privacy, such as the aforementioned, let's say, human rights activists or environmental activists or whatever, right? Uh, but but that unfortunately the, the side effect of that is is also an an opportunity for criminals yep. to to transact with anyone around the world, which you clearly cannot do if you have cash, right? You, you know you have to transact face to face if you have cash. Yeah. Uh, so so that potentially makes if you think of a network effect that makes it a lot easier to launder your money. We had a we had a guy called Oliver Bullough, an author on on episode two of this podcast. We were talking about ultimate beneficial ownership, but his book Moneyland he talks about the naughty money gets mm. mixed in with the scared money, and he's talking about the original sort of bearer bonds and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it, it sounds like there's a similar thing here. It's yeah, there are some legitimate use cases, but that can be taken advantage of. I guess Lawrence, if I was to, to turn to you, you know, all your AML experience, how do you go about trying to, you know, you mentioned traceability, but how do you go about trying to break out what is the legitimately scared money and therefore using it for, you know, quote unquote, the, the right reasons versus that which is nefarious and that you don't want to you know, be part of enabling? Just to confirm, what do you mean by scared money? Scared money would be the human rights activist uh, in an authoritarian country I who see. the government's going to come after them through some, you know, um, cooked up uh, charge. There are some people who have, you know, legitimate claims to, you know, have that utmost privacy, as Neil's mentioned, um, great examples. I mean, I, I've, uh, I've worked in, in the Bitcoin and crypto space now for a few years and, and I've heard obviously a range, a spectrum of arguments. And on the one hand, it's, you know, the, 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 uh, the privacy purists, um, who says, you know, who the argument there is everyone has a right to privacy. Uh, especially when it comes to something as uh, sensitive as your your financial transactions, 
uh, and they would say that the KYC AML framework doesn't work. It, it's burdensome and it is just ultimately a breach of privacy. But, I mean, if you look at the counterfactual of that, imagine a world where, as you say, um, no one knew who, who anyone was. Mm-hmm. And we're not even face to face. I mean, do you want to live in the financial world equivalent of Mad Max? I don't. Um, probably most people don't. So it gives um, security as well. So, I mean, it's a trade-off. Um, and I think that's how we've, how I've tried to position it um, when it comes to KYC and AML, which at times can be and feel like an invasion of privacy. But I mean, when it works, it, it's there for a good reason. I mean, it is, um, and it's not, um, the balance is getting it right and not abusing that and being very cognizant of, of privacy. That has to be front of mind. But when there is um, legitimate reason, whether that's with, with law enforcement or one of our own discoveries of you know, clear abuse, um, obviously then you need to know who's behind it. Um, if we didn't, then how would we ever bring anything to justice? So yeah, and, and Lawrence, your your career is interesting because you've worked, you know, in compliance and AML roles in sort of purely fiat businesses, and then you know a mixed, and then something that's much more crypto focused. How has what's the opportunity for you as a the profession, you know, as an AFC professional, changed when you've gotten more involved in in the crypto side of things? I mean, the people in the space are geniuses, a lot of them, I mean, worked with very smart people, which is amazing. And the kind of the approach is right. We're, we're doing something new. And if we, if we're talking about AML and, and, uh, regulation there, we want to be better than what was done in, let's say TradFi, um, more efficient, leaner, use a, a wider set of tools. Uh, and that immediately became clear to me. Um, you know, some of the some of the key tools we, we've seen, we talked about traceability. We have n- numerous companies now, uh, Chainalysis, Elliptic, um, there's smaller ones coming up as well that are basically labeling the blockchain and allowing a compliance professional to say, um, a very great example, darknet activity or um, so anything that's, uh, uh, any transaction that's come from the dark net, depending on risk appetite, um, a business may say, well, we're not, we certainly want to be alerted about that. And we probably don't want to deal with that in any, in any sort of size. So these, these, um, technology tools allow you to flag, um, well, they flag transactions that are labeled as, as, uh, as nefarious and, you know, in a compliance professional can do that before, uh, can basically, uh, detect those before the, the size gets too large. Yeah. And, and with, presumably without necessarily needing a whole source of funds questionnaire that you would have if someone came in with a lot of cash and said they, they ran a cash business and were just depositing it. For sure. And, um, you know, there's, there's tools you can, approaches and tools you can use in terms of having certain restrictions on account limits or functionality. So you can limit the risk of a business on a smaller scale. Cause I mean, um, criminals will come to a new service and test it out. Yeah, probably with a small size. Um, they're not going to come in and and do you know ten million straight off the bat, um, an established place. So that gives the uh, the compliance professional the opportunity to, uh, if you have restrictions in place, to to check stuff early on. Um, and and these tools really help with that. And we've touched on it a couple of times, but you know, and you just use the 
the uh, sort of the other one you've used TradFi, but we want to talk about DeFi and especially decentralized finance and what is being called Web3. Nils, would you maybe to give us a little bit around what's going on in that space in general and what that would mean for society? And then Lawrence, I'd love for you to sort of, as Nils gives us that, that insight, sort of think about what would that mean for KYC and we, we can just have a discussion. Okay. Well, uh, I think the first thing to, um, to say is that in five years from now, that there'll be another buzzword we're talking about. And, sure. and um, <laughs> you know, five years ago, people were talking about crypto and blockchain. Now they're talking about NFTs and DeFi. And so, so if you're in the technology space, there, there will be some sort of buzzword or acronym that comes along. But really what we're talking about uh, is the progressive disintermediation and decentralization of uh, financial services. And that, uh, that, that's been going on for some time. So um, uh, once upon a time, we used to talk of neobanks, uh, th- then uh, platform banking, banking as a service, fintech, and really uh, DeFi is putting that trend on a blockchain. So allowing okay. people to essentially use blockchain technology to, to transact uh, peer-to-peer. Okay, so that lead to sort of reduced fees, uh, reduced need for, for, as you say, those intermediaries. What, what sort of opportunity does that create? Like what, why do that other than to save a little bit of cost? Well, I, in some instances, it's quite a lot of cost. So according to the World Bank, um, the average cost of sending a remittance uh, between, uh, let's for lack of a better term, let, let's call it the first world to the third world. Uh, the cost of that is something like six uh, percent, right? Which is clearly a lot of money if you're sending a payment home to to support your family. And so, if 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 people are able to transact peer to peer, you know, by by cutting the out the intermediaries and and thereby the implicit cost of arbitration, uh, auditing costs, all all manner of transaction costs. Uh, you know, you can free up quite a bit of capital that'll go into people's pockets. And uh, th- there is evidence from this. Um, it's not quite DeFi, but it's almost there. And, and it's uh, with uh, the, the use of basic mobile technology, so 2G phones mm. in Kenya, allowing people to, to, to basically send each other money via text. Uh, and uh, there's some studies that suggest that that's uh, lifted 2% of Kenyan households out of poverty. And so, so reducing transaction costs at the margin do, does increase financial inclusion. It does open up the financial system. And if you would imagine that, well, we're here in the UK, we can quite easily uh, invest in UK businesses. But, but what if we could invest in a Kenyan farm, for instance, or, or a Mongolian startup? But with the click of a few buttons, suddenly it, it, by making the, the capital markets uh, global, they become more liquid. And in theory, that should open up more, shall we say, investment opportunities for us uh, here in the Western world and in emerging and developing economies that, that opens up uh, access to capital. And, and hopefully that facilitates economic growth. So there's 
be more transactions, less intermediaries, more um, investment opportunities mm. uh, from more different groups of people. So, Lawrence, what would that mean if you're thinking from a KYC perspective or a KYC professional perspective? There is no, there's no central body where that bank is regulated or that business is regulated, but it's going from nils to the Mongolian startup. How, how do we ensure that the, the legitimate money isn't getting uh, mixed up with some nefarious money for a, you know, uh, illegal arms deal or a bribery payment that's been sent from one 2G phone to another? So how, how do you think about that? I mean, firstly, I think the points Niels has raised are completely correct. The financial inclusion aspect of, of cryptocurrency Bitcoin being the first, uh, and if we go further along the spectrum into DeFi and, and other things, it's huge. It, it's opened up the financial world to to people and areas that just didn't exist before. And I think um, you know traditional banks would have simply turned down business because the KYC costs were too onerous, the compliance costs were too onerous. Um, I remember speaking um, and and speaking to. to colleagues in uh, in the banking space and they talk about de-risking so you, d- you just go th- into when it came to a kyc refresh it would be simpler and, and less costly to simply just deny access which doesn't sound like the right approach right um obviously you, you might within that there might be some legitimately or should we say risky illegitimate business but you're probably turning away a lot of legitimate business uh, and that is the challenge I mean, I think I, to answer your question, revert to the, the core principles. Um, you know, as if you're a, a regulated business, who is your customer? Is it a you know a, a man in in Kenya starting up a, a farm, or is it a, a business here investing in that? Uh, and getting going through the proper channels. Who are they? Um, if if they're making an investment, where has that where have those funds come from? Getting comfortable with that, making sure it makes sense. I think the challenging in in uh, in the digital asset space is that quite a few people who otherwise would not have been um, have become quite rich, quite wealthy um, through speculation, through other investments, and you know whether they you know were they an early investor in Ethereum or have they converted uh, ill-gotten gains into crypto assets, thinking they'll be able to distribute that more easily. That that is the challenge. Um, and that is a, a real challenge. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of art and science use, using the tools of traceability um, um, and traditional tools for KYC. And basically, does it make sense? Does it make commercial st- sense? Could we justify this? My, my, my uh, acid test is, you know, if an auditor came in and we have a kind of exotic client, could we explain through the case file, explain the reasoning, explain the checks we've done and, and say, you know, this is why we think it was a, a correct decision. Sure. And that's from a, a company perspective in the peer to peer instance where you don't have that, what we would think of as a regulated entity today, I guess sort of the question is how do we, as a society, as you know, particularly um, if you think about the, the focus at the moment from governments around the world of making sure only the money we want to move is being moved. How do, how do we keep control of that if there's no institution? One phrase that I, I read in preparation for this um, 
this episode was uh, just an abstract of a, an academic article we can, can link to it because I can't remember the title, but it was talked about embedded supervision. So you've got a blockchain or multiple blockchains that are allowing these peer-to-peer payments, you know, whether that's internationally or, or wherever, but there'd be sort of, a, I guess, a live feed to those that are tasked with, with you know, police in the world. Um, so whether this or not this would go to what other current regulators or whether or not this would go directly to law enforcement, I guess they would be looking at something equivalent to moder- you know, current transaction monitoring. So there isn't an institution, but every payment is looked at by the, the agency. Does that make sense to you, Lawrence? I mean, it may, it, it's, to me, that seems like a way, way off. I mean, regulators are just getting their heads around the technology here. Um, sure. I mean, we've seen uh, law enforcement get comfortable with, with some of the, uh, the block explorer and, and the traceability tools um, referred to. But I mean, uh, wow. I mean, that's basically living in a world of, of pure surveillance um, mm. all the time, which again, is a, a deep philosophical question. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd hesitate to say whether that is possible or even the right way to do things um, in terms of having a central body of surveillance because I guess that brings into question how are they, what principles are they going by, sure. um, how are they doing the correct job. Um, yeah, opens up a myriad of, uh, of questions. Uh, Neil was a, a big Curious to hear yours from an academic perspective. Well, actually, I think you said it yourself earlier that you spoke of a compromise. You mentioned the Mad Max anarchy, you know, complete anarchy, that that scenario. And everything is a compromise between anarchy and extreme authoritarianism, right? Mm. So, so you know, if, if you want to live in a society with zero crime, just move to North Korea. I, I do apologize to any any listeners from North Korea, I, I do not intend to offend them, but, but that is a society where, where the law is vigorously enforced right. ve- very harshly, right? And they have a surprise, surprise, very little crime. And, and I think every society is a spectrum between that and anarchy. And I, clearly here in the UK, we fall somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. We're a reasonably law-abiding and liberal society. And I think that, you know, frankly, I'd rather live here than <laughs> at either of the two extremes. Sure. Well, a bit back to you, Lawrence, I have some ideas. Well, but I mean, if we, if we take that a step further, that means pure surveillance of the, of the, uh, of the, let's say be, let's just simplify and say Bitcoin won the race. Sure. And uh, there was a surveillance mechanism of, of the Bitcoin network. I guess who's that is that being done on a country by country basis or an international basis? Because mm. then that, you know, we've already seen that different regulators take a very different approach. As Neil said, I mean, would you rather live in North Korea or somewhere in the middle, like or, or a Mad Max Mad Max state? I mean, if we trust our institutions, and I think that is a big reason why crypto has come up, is because there has been less trust in big centralized institutions, well then in theory, yeah, you should be, you should trust the government uh, and regulators to, to do everything perfectly. Um, where there is distrust um, or perhaps the thought that they haven't done things as well. And th- this is kind of the, the spirit of, of this new financial system that's being created is we can do better. Yeah. I mean, 
interesting because we're saying in the DeFi example in that that world where if everyone was a good actor and it allowed us to invest in businesses around the world, brought everyone in, that sounds great. But we know there is a bad, you know, a bad actor element, and therefore our current way of trying to keep on top of that is having intermediaries. But if you get rid of the intermediaries, who's doing the KYC, the AML, the AFC? So do, it, does it go to the, when we talked about this in episode or part two of the series with Tom and, and Craig and saying, well, the person does the person that writes the DeFi protocol, the person that writes the code, do they become accountable for what happens on it? Potentially not because who are they? Sometimes they're pseudonymous. Um, sometimes it's open source. So does each person just become responsible for the transactions they do? But then the only way to enforce that is to have someone being able to see you know, the risky things going on or the mm. patterns going on. But as you said, you don't want to have complete power because we um, know it. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, reality is I think it's going to evolve and how I would like to see it evolve is into a cohesive ecosystem. You know, and I can speak from experience working with law enforcement, regulators, private enterprise together with a common set of, you know, ethical standards um, is a good setup. And maybe the, the embedded transaction monitoring is an element to that. Um, mm. Depends how it's deployed, uh, if it's effective. And if, if that can uh, generate leads for law enforcement at that um, private enterprise. I mean, no, no company wants to um, receive information that they've been party to laundering billions of dollars of uh, international human trafficking, right? So... I mean, we, hope it, we hope not. Um, yeah, maybe some <laughs> well, some previous uh, actions uh, suggest otherwise, but no. Um, so, I mean, that, that's how I think we should uh, approach it. Yeah. As you say, you know, it's always about being in the middle. So I think I'm deliberately trying to push us into areas just to explore this for the point of this episode, but sorry. No, Can I, yeah. So this idea of embedded supervision. So I, I am speaking as a former regulator here. I used to work at the, what was then called the Financial Services Authority uh, about 10 or so years ago. And th this idea that, uh, you know, that regulators and law enforcement will be monitoring everything. Uh, the way I look at it is it's, it's, a, um, it's essentially a way of them making the best use they can of their limited resource base. Right. Because if, if you are any regulatory body or law enforcement agency, you have to employ lawyers and accountants and various other skilled professionals. And that the amount, the number of them you can employ is limited by your staff budget. Yeah. And so you're in a world, you put yourself in their shoes. You're in a world that's, where technology is, is becoming increasingly ubiquitous, increasingly complex. And so you, you turn to technology in the hope that you, you can make better use of your, your limited staff time. Yeah. So, so that's, it, you can call it, you know, embedded supervision or reg tech or whatnot, but it all means the same. It means how can we save staff time? Yeah, and thereby make our regulation of let's say in the example of, uh, you know what is now called the Financial Conduct Authority, uh, how can we make supervision of financial services more effective and efficient? Yeah, uh, that's a really great point that 
really, no, this embedded supervision term that I've come across online mm. effectively could, you, know, you say, could be called regtech. And mm-hmm. what was the point of regtech? Because fintechs wanted to do KYC faster than it had ever been done before and, and other parts of KYC AML. And, and they have done, that's a big part of their marketing, right? Lawrence is get onboarded in two minutes or in, three minutes. Or, indeed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's regulatory evolution, I suppose. I mean, when you think about it, um, the AML laws that required businesses, private enterprises who otherwise probably weren't worrying too much about, you know, uh, illicit activity and anti-money laundering, they said, right, you are now, the eyes and ears have been extended and you have to do this because uh, resources are limited, of course. And, you know, as a society, we should all take ownership. Maybe now with the technology evolving, uh, regulators could say, well, okay, you don't have to do as much monitoring. We'll do some if they have the tools uh, to do so. I wonder if for the, again, imagine, I assume the audience is mostly KYC, AML professionals, AFC professionals, maybe is um, the collective term. So for the AFC professional, if there's more DeFi and there are less intermediaries or the, there was going to be some sort of uh, centralization of the monitoring, does that mean that the career opportunity ends up in those bodies because there's less intermediaries to go work for or because they need investigators to go along with their accountants and their lawyers. That would be an interesting thing to sort of play out. Maybe not, it's not going to happen over the next couple of years, mm. but maybe the next well, 10. I think the, uh, the AFC professionals you say is there will be plenty of opportunities in the future because, I mean, yes, technology is, is opening up, uh, is taking away some aspect of you know, human jobs, but, you know, just look at DeFi now that's just coming within the regulatory perimeter. Um, yeah. and yeah, we need humans to, to figure it out and, uh, and be able to deploy the technology appropriately. That's step, step one. Those that understand it, I imagine will be highly sought after and there's very the few. next couple of years. Yeah. Well, well, it's, it's perennial because technology is com- always evolving and, you know, society, the economy is becoming increasingly digitized. So therefore more complex. So, so there, there will be plenty of, and oh, by the way, you know, criminals are still going to try to do crime. <laughs> so for those of you listening in the audience, uh, you know, you know, the future is green for you uh, career wise. If, if you're able to marry your expertise in, let's say KYC with, with a, an understanding and a, and a deepening knowledge of a technology. Sure. It- if you were to play forward, so I asked the question in part two to uh, Tom from Elliptic and Craig from the NCA, like what do you think will evolve over the next one to three years in terms of risk mitigation, um, in terms of enforcement? Could I ask you the same question, but both of you, but let's move it out to maybe a 10-year horizon? So you, you'll probably be wrong, let's be honest. <laughs> 10 years is too far for any of us to see forward, but by that point, we will have all moved on and no one's going to come after you for it. So Feel free to take a 10 year uh, prediction, Alex. That's yeah. very ambitious. Uh, uh, take a, take a free shot. Um, where, what do you think the, you know, we're talking about the opportunities that have been presented for society, but also for anti-financial crime in 10 years, what could you imagine the, the landscape being? Well, before I answer that question, I would invite your listeners to uh, look in the news archives of the guardian, uh, and search for the year 2000, 2010 and 2020. And, and look at the, the kinds of predictions people come out with uh, b- before the end of every decade and then, then compare them to what actually happened. Uh, there, are, there are some wild ones uh, <laughs> in there, but um, 
In terms of, let's say more broadly, uh, because I'm, I'm not a KYC professional, I think that there'll be more space for like tethering of, you know, so, so we have all these companies, large institutions with many different systems. And, and so one of the, the challenges, you know, behind the scenes, what we'll be getting all these things to tether and work together more efficiently. Uh, so, so I see that as a trend. I see increasing automation. I think uh, the next, let, let's say up until 2030, uh, it'll be the decade of the, the, the kind of, it, broadly speaking, the financial services uh, and risk professionals. So I'm speaking very broadly here. So, so everyone behind the scenes, yeah. it, it'll be their decade. So, so it'll be about making the, let's call it, you know, the institutions, the machines run better. Okay, so that middle and back office is exactly. going to be revolutionized. That's where, that, that's where the action is. Uh, you know, if you look back in the 80s, 90s, it was all about the front office. I think the next decade will, will be about, the, as you say, the middle and back office and, and optimizing those and, and making them, them run better. And Lawrence, I mean, you've done some of this, right? Working for fintechs, you have done KYC differently to how those in traditional institutions you know, will have done it. Um, certainly less siloed. I've had the chance to work with you on some of it over the years, but again, maybe if you play the, the clock forward to 2030, as Nils says, do you have a prediction of what, what that reg tech stack might look like for well, AFC professional? I'd love to say that we'll completely revolutionize what it means to be KYC'd and the process of uploading multiple documents to multiple entities all the time um, with differing you know, uh, information security practices, those days would hopefully be gone. I don't know if it's 10 years, but, um, and I'm not the first to make this, uh, this prediction either, but, uh, I think a lot of KYC pro professionals, it would resonate with. So having a digital identity okay. on the blockchain that basically if you sign up to a new service, it requires your signature. Okay. Submit. And, um, you know, that would simplify things a lot. It would be encrypted. Now, how and exactly how, how we get there and whether it's a combination of private enterprise, government, um, who knows? Um, not many people, it's, a, it's a, a brave, brave uh, road to go down. But, um, you know, that would be one aspect. I'd like to say that would be uh, prediction number one. Okay. Well, um, nice about predictions, you don't actually have to go do them. Just predict. <laughs> Just predict, yeah. I mean, yeah, if I, if I get a chance to work on, on something like that, um, in the future, I would also love to do it. I mean, the other thing is we'll see DeFi and, and crypto digital assets are a new phenomenon that potentially young, young people will, will have grown up with just as we grew up with um, technology um, or the kids who grew up with mobile phones, you know, you wouldn't think twice about that. Yeah. They would be very comfortable using uh, digital assets. Now, whether it's a Bitcoin only or, or you know, a much smaller subset or we have a, I still have a huge range of coins offering different uh, financial services, I do think that's only going to grow from here um, as, as, uh, as new generations come in and, and just get very comfortable with that. And regulators will have to adapt as we are already seeing. So guys, just as we, we wrap this up, we always like to leave the audience with some recommended resources. Um, so, you know, if I start with you, is there anything you've read, watched, listened to that you have found really, really helpful in Absolutely. learning more about? Absolutely. So um, 
I'm I'm going to give a, perhaps a resource that the people are not expecting. But there's plenty of good stuff written about crypto and blockchain and whatnot. But, but I'll I'll go a bit left field. Uh, th- there is a book on uh, systems theory by an author uh, called Donella Meadows. It's called Thinking in Systems: A Primer, and I I feel more than anything that that book has really helped me understand uh, society, economics, business, things like that. So, so I'd recommend that. Uh, I, I can certainly send you the link. Uh, and the yeah, title. No, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, other than that, um, if, if people in the audience want to learn more about crypto, just go to a, any kind of website uh, such as CoinMarketCap and look at the main cryptos and download their white paper and try to understand what's going on. That's what I say to my students. You don't have to understand all of it, but as long as you learn a little bit, look up what all these terms mean, try to mind map it out. And over time, you'll build your knowledge base and, and you, you know, you're, you will become a lot more valuable in the, the labor market as a result. Sure. And Lawrence, how about you? Is there anything that you found particularly helpful when, especially when you entered the world of sort of crypto that has been a resource you've pointed other professionals to? I mean, I worked very closely with Elliptic, um, who are one of the, the, the main players in, uh, in blockchain uh, labeling and tracing. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very useful to look at some of their publications. I think some of them are, are publicly available. If you do work for uh, an organization, then, um, you know, putting your, your corporate address and, uh, or ask your compliance officer, I'm pretty sure they'd, they'd happily give out some materials to, uh, to explain, you know, the risks and, and the financial crimes we're seeing on the blockchain. Um, and generally speaking, uh, in this space, if you, if you can, obviously you need to understand the regulations. Um, and, but if you, you can use the tools and you understand the basics and, you know, use a block explorer, understand what a transaction, um, hash is and, you know, think like a criminal. We always said in, in the compliance yeah. team, if, if you can do that, you'll be really valuable and uh, you'll probably find it uh, quite a fun exercise to do. As long as you use your powers for good. Yes. Yes. With great power. <laughs> <laughs> um, one final plug, because Niels was too polite to do it. Uh, you do have a book, don't you, Niels? So Financial Technology, Case Studies in Fintech Innovation. I know you're writing another one as well, but I will say people should go and get that um, because you're too polite to. Thank you very much, Alex. I appreciate the plug. Great stuff. Guys, thank you both so much for your, your points, your insights, your sort of wild predictions uh, today. Really appreciate it. And, you know, as I said at the start, this is the, the more fun episode because it's, you know, I'm not expecting anyone to hold us to any of it. So, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, really appreciate your time and thank you for coming in. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I hope this episode has given everyone something to think about particularly as we look to a future where more people and businesses participate in the crypto economy and need to find new ways to manage the risks from the new opportunities it creates. A big thanks again to Niels and Lawrence for their time and insights. If you've listened to the whole series, then firstly, thank you. We hope it's provided a jumping off point for more learning and education and it's provided listeners with more confidence to apply their KYC and AML expertise to the crypto space. Secondly, if you have other areas you'd like us to explore related to crypto, then please let us know, either at podcast at moody's.com or by connecting with me personally on LinkedIn. 
If you think you'd like to come on and share some expertise, then do reach out. We've had an amazing response to the podcast episodes and series we've released so far, and so we'll continue to make more with the goal of helping our listeners expand their knowledge of the topics, trends, and debates within the world of KYC. Our next planned release of KYC Decoded will be taking a deeper look at a concept mentioned in passing on some previous episodes, namely perpetual KYC. What is it? Why does it matter? And how can companies get away from outdated refresh models that leave big gaps in their risk-based approach? Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks to all guests and listeners and to producers Caroline Waters and Mark Rundle. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.